Moving on in our study of what the Bible has to say about preaching the gospel and the call that we have to preach the gospel, my main focus being that we are responsible for the preaching of the gospel, not only within the walls of the church, but outside the walls of the church, and that we're to do so with every means possible. In order to prove that point, I've been going through some of the passages in the Bible that talk about preaching the gospel. I said I was going to start with those in the book of Acts because they show us the spirit and the methods the early church used in preaching the gospel, which is obviously the same spirit, motivation, methods, and so on that we should be using to preach the gospel today. So we went through the first four chapters of Acts. The next example of people being added to the church is after the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. And we'll break in at the ending of that story with the feeling that came over the church after they died. It's in Acts 5, 11 to 16. It says, Great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest, durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. There's two different contrasting feelings that are being described here in this passage, one which restrained people from joining the church and the other that encouraged people to be out of the church. In the first case, there was a feeling of great fear due to what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira that not only came upon the unbelievers who hadn't been out of the church yet, but they came upon the church itself. That fear was driven by the knowledge that God wouldn't tolerate certain things in the church, and his response against it might be, and you see in this case it was, both swift and severe. The description of the rest durst no man join himself to them has been the subject of a lot of debate about who it's describing. Some believe it was referring to the individuals in the church not trying to push forward into positions of leadership that they hadn't been clearly given by God, especially claiming to be apostles or ministers under their own steam, so to speak because they feared the true authority and anointed backing by God's power of the apostles who had been genuinely called. Others believe this is referring to unbelievers being fearful of joining the church because of the presence of that kind of judgment going on, or that it could have been talking about people that were wealthy and powerful persons, as some believe Ananias and Sapphira would have been, who feared to add themselves to the church because of the way Ananias and Sapphira were judged regarding their possessiveness of their wealth. Those who hold the latter view believe there may be a contrast of the powerful and wealthy who were fearing the authority of the apostles with the common people who magnified them, as the scripture here says, and that those common people were the believers in the next statement who were the more added to the Lord. Regardless if that is the case or not, or if there's some overlapping version of those ideas, the key point is that the power and authority that was present among the apostolic leaders of the church caused some people to fear becoming part of the church, or possibly to fear trying to attain a position of authority by their own means within the church. And that power and authority, not only seen in the judgment in Acts 5, 1 to 10, but also in the signs and wonders that were positive in nature, like the great healings and freeing from evil spirits you see in verses 15 to 16, caused other people people to be drawn to the church. 
Bottom line is, this passage tells us several things about how people were added or rejected being potentially added to the church. And it tells us something that could be easily missed about the public nature of the things that were occurring in the church. First, the power of the Spirit in the church was so potent in its presence and operation that it could, in some circumstances, make the church a fearful place to be in, at least if you weren't there for the right reasons, or if you weren't honest in your communication and endeavors, or if you did not have a genuine desire to be in a right relationship with the Lord. That same potent presence of God among his people and the reality of the work of his spirit going on among them was a powerful drawing agency to people who genuinely desired him and who were not only willing to be changed, but were hungry to be changed. Another thing this passage reveals, it's I think is pertinent to the subject of the open and transparent activity of the church that I've been discussing, is that even the negative judgment that occurred within the church among its members in what would seem to be a non-public environment wasn't hidden or covered up from the public outside the church. Seems clear that many didn't join the church or did end up joining the church because they'd heard about what had happened with Ananias and Sapphira, which means it wasn't swept under the rug or kept from public knowledge. When those in the church did that which was evil, it was firmly and decisively dealt with, and it was not hidden from view or excused away. Another thing is, the unbelievers who were added to the church, and thus became believers, were not only a result of this information being known to the public, they were also added as a result of the positive, miraculous operations that were going on through the church, which were also public in nature. Notice it says they brought forth the sick into the streets. didn't say they brought the sick people into the church or that they required them to first become members of the church or to come to their church before they would interact with them. They were doing so in the streets. The next passage immediately follows the events of the first part of Acts 5 and describes the response of the religious leaders of the people who were being influenced to turn to the Christian faith at this time. That's in Acts 5, 17-42. It says, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Now you notice, by the way, I stressed a number of words in there. We're going to come back to those. But each statement that I parsed out like that is very important to this subject. goes on to say, When they had heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate, the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put into prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. 
When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, and as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. This tells us that the apostles were imprisoned for the public and open preaching and teaching of the precious truths of the gospel. Not only is that obvious by the verses that preceded this, but when they were freed by the angel, his command to them was to continue to publicly preach and teach those precious truths. Notice it says, the angel of the Lord said, go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. There's two significant points that mandate tells us. First, the Lord intended the apostles to preach and teach in the most public and potentially conflict-creating environments possible for them in the temple. Second, they weren't just to teach some watered-down partial gospel and hide away the more precious truths that it contained from the people who were in that very public arena. They were to stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. The temple was a highly public place And the people to whom they were speaking all the words of this life were not church members inside the walls of the church. They were non-believers who needed to hear that message to give them the opportunity to become believers and then to go on into and become a part of the church. After the apostles were freed by the angel, they obeyed his command and went back to the temple. Again, the most public and potentially inflammatory environment they could have preached in within the entire nation of Israel. And they not only preached in a general sense, but they taught, which implies not only a simple evangelistic message, but a more in-depth exegesis of the truth of the gospel. And that, by the way, is clear by the accusation of the high priest that they were not only teaching, but had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. That's precisely the opposite of controlling the outflow of the precious truths of the Word of God by constraining them inside the walls of the church and commanding people not to preach and teach them in public venues as some ministers have done. Jerusalem was filled with the doctrine of the apostles because they were openly and publicly preaching and teaching it despite, by the way, being threatened and warned not to do so. And even after they were beaten and commanded to stop speaking in his name, daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. There are two witnesses that this had to have been open and public preaching and teaching. One, the religious leaders wouldn't have been fearful about what they might teach behind closed doors among their own insulated group. They were worried about the message getting out among the people they didn't want to be influenced by it. Two, they preached and taught, again, more than just preaching a basic message of forgiveness, 
but in-depth teaching as well. Not only in every house, which by the way, might have been a reference to more than just their house churches, but to any house that would allow them to preach in it, which is exactly what Jesus did during his ministry. But they also preach daily in the temple, in that public venue as well. So the apostles were determined to preach and teach to everyone in every place they possibly could, not just in the insulary environments of houses that were only inhabited by believers or in churches where those who wandered in, so to speak, were able to hear the precious truths of the gospel. They taught those truths in every environment possible in, with deeper teaching than just a simple message of common salvation. The next example of the church increasing in numbers is in the wings of the ordination of the seven men that we sometimes refer to as deacons in Acts 6. I'm going to read the 7th to the 15th verse. It says, The word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, this passage is a little more subtle in its points regarding outreach and evangelism, but it does continue the same pattern we've seen up to this point and includes some other insights as well. It says that as the word of God increased, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and that included the addition of a great company of the priests. That would seem to imply that the greater the insight and understanding of the word of God increased, the more people were drawn to the church. And by the way, that would also imply that that greater insight and understanding must have been communicated publicly, not just within the walls of the church, in order for so many people to be drawn to the church by it. That assumption is further validated by the attacks from the synagogues who must have heard Stephen's preaching and teaching in some public venue that caused them to rise up against it and him. The fact that they were disputing with him, and he must have been responding to them in person, such that they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spake, reinforces that. And it seems to convey that there must have been some type of public dispute occurring between Stephen and these men. As we'll see quite a bit more in the record of Paul's ministry, several chapters after this, open discussion and even dispute with those who stood against the truths of the gospel appears to have been a common practice of the ministry of the early church. They were men of great courage and complete transparency regarding their beliefs. They didn't hide their message behind the walls of their church or firewall their words behind private and password-protected barriers to prevent anyone outside of their insular congregations hearing the preaching and teaching of the truth. The events of this passage lead directly into the events of Acts 7, which I'm not going to go into in any kind of detail, but it is an example of preaching a very controversial message to a group that was highly resistant to it in a location that was obviously not inside the walls of a New Covenant church. 
The open and transparent statements of Stephen that are described in Acts 6-7 to are a glaring contrast to the cowardice and conflict avoidance that often occurs in the modern church, exhibited by bold attacks against the world, Babylon, and even against other ministers and churches from pulpits within the closed walls of a church, and thus only made behind closed doors and in closed services, but very little boldness in public and open environments. That just testifies the lack of confidence in the supposed convictions of individuals who like to take shots at people behind closed doors or in closed services, while apparently not having strong enough convictions to have the courage to do so openly and in public. Unlike Stephen's open disputation and declarations against the evils of that day and those who espoused them, which, by the way, is part of the spirit of evangelism as well as the spirit of prophecy, many in the modern church have no problem speaking out sharply and critically against whatever it is they deem to be evil, as long as those they're speaking about or against can't hear them saying it. They keep the doors and windows closed by forbidding public access to their preaching, or their statements are much bolder behind their pulpits than they are outside of their church. But if you have true courage, you'll be willing to stand against what is truly evil and incorrect, not just behind guarded walls, but standing on the top of the wall where everyone can see you and everyone can hear you. The true church and the true ministry are to be beacons of light, even when that light is at times piercing and uncomfortable, as you can see in Acts 2.37 and 5.33 and 7.54. We're not to be lurkers in the shadow, taking shots in the dark. We are to stand openly on our convictions and with the courage that true conviction always carries in its wings. This issue of hiding the truth is a problem throughout Christendom. There are many who are afraid to stand on biblical convictions, and so they kowtow to the present culture. There are others who apparently are afraid to stand on their convictions publicly because they deny access to anything that's being said within their church, not only to the public, unless they walk through the doors, but sometimes people even guard what they're saying in their church from other ministers and churches that they are in fellowship with. Forgive me, but something is very likely seriously wrong with what you're saying or why you're hiding it if you have to hide it from other ministers you are in fellowship with and you will not allow other churches you claim to be in fellowship with to hear. It is certainly reasonable to periodically privately address issues that are sensitive and personal to a local church that don't need to be opened outside observation. And there are times that things may be said that you later realize could be taken the wrong way that you might want to take down if you had them somewhere online because you realize I shouldn't have said it that way or I made a mistake in what I said. But if you're adamant that what you're saying is right, why would you hide those statements from those who you believe need to hear them and be changed by them? If you truly believe them and you truly believe you have the authority and unction to make them, then surely that would give you the courage and the conviction to do so openly with an open face, which has nothing to do with facial hair, by the way, as I've sometimes heard people bring it up. It is talking about doing something without hiding, looking somebody in the eye when you're dealing with them. After the events of Acts 6 and 7, the persecution of the church caused many of the believers to be scattered abroad, as the scripture describes it. That led them to going out into areas and to people that they hadn't previously evangelized. In Acts 8, 4 to 8, it says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. 
I believe God intended the church to be scattered abroad and that that was one of the positive outcomes of the negative process of persecution that they were going through. Scattering the members of the church abroad ensured that the word of God would not only be presented in the centralized location that was the church at Jerusalem, but that it would, like the sowing of the seed of the sower in Matthew 13, allow the seed of the truths of the gospel to fall upon other ground. As I keep reiterating, as I'm going through this series on preaching the gospel, some are determined to argue that the preaching of the precious seed of the word of God is only intended to fall on the ground of the church. But that is absolutely the opposite of what the Bible describes. I just use the example of Matthew 13, which I'm sure we'll come back to at some point on this issue. The seed was sown on all kinds of ground, including ground that did not produce anything. And it certainly is to be sown on ground that is outside the walls of the church, spiritually and naturally speaking. Unlike the belief that some hold that those who are intended to hear the word of God will be caused by God to show up at the church to hear it, and thus apparently there's no need to go out to them or present it anywhere publicly, Philip went out of the church at Jerusalem to Samaria and preached Christ, which as I keep repeating, is the most precious truth he had to offer to the Samaritans. Moving on in that 8th chapter of Acts, in the 14th to the 17th verse, says, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet it was fallen upon none of them, and only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, this doesn't sound like it's a statement about evangelism and outreach, but it does prove something that I have been pointing out all throughout that is a response to the claim that if God wants people to hear the truth, he'll send them to the church. Notice that Philip didn't tell the Samaritans to go to the church at Jerusalem if they wanted to hear more of the truth and receive the Holy Spirit. Those at the church at Jerusalem went out to the Samaritans to share that greater truth with them. They didn't have to first come to the church in order to hear the message, and they didn't even have to first come to the church to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean people don't need to come to the church and that they can develop fully in their faith and spiritual life without doing so. Of course that's not the case. But what it does mean is that people don't have to first come to the church to hear the preaching and teaching of the truth that may later lead them to doing so. Now in the 25th chapter of Acts 8, it says, And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Though the ministers involved did return to Jerusalem, they didn't wait there for more Samaritans to show up at their church. They continued to go out into the villages of the Samaritans to preach to them where they were. 26 through the 40th verse says, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go towards the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is the desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Quoting, of course, from Isaiah 53. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? 
And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. There's several important keys in this passage that are some of the best motivating powers. They're not the only ones, but they are some of the best motivating powers that should cause someone to go out to preach and teach to others. The first of these is that an angel of the Lord told Philip to go into the desert where he would encounter the Ethiopian eunuch. Again, notice the angel didn't tell the Ethiopian eunuch to go to the church in Jerusalem to hear the message. He certainly could have. Instead, though, he told the messenger, Philip, to take the message, that precious truth of the gospel of Christ, out to the one who needed to hear it. I've said this before, but I keep reiterating the phrase precious truth for a reason. There are some who've claimed that we shouldn't share our precious truths with those outside the walls of the church, because doing so would be casting our pearls before swine or giving that which is holy to dogs. I keep reiterating this point because those statements have been so grievously misinterpreted. And I will, as I also keep repeating, go into that in detail a little later and prove that those statements about dogs and swine do not mean what some have mistakenly used them to claim that is an almost anti-evangelistic spirit. The passages in Acts alone completely disprove that Jesus was forbidding the sharing of the precious truths of the gospel outside the walls of the church, not only because the New Covenant ministry was consistently doing exactly that, they were sharing the most precious message they had to those outside their walls in very public places, very controversial environments, and with very open means and methods, but also because the most precious truths we have that I keep repeating, that's the basis for everything else we might hold precious, is the truth about the identity and work of Jesus. There is no more precious truth, because every other new covenant truth that is precious is dependent upon that truth, and every other new covenant truth that is precious is an extension, something built on or out from that truth. And it's abundantly obvious that that most precious truth is exactly what the ministry were openly and publicly preaching to all who would listen, not only within the confines of gatherings of believers, but in every place, no matter how public, that they could find an opening to preach and teach. This example in this passage of an angel instructing someone to go and preach and the description of the Spirit catching Philip away and bringing him to other places to preach aren't intended to infer those are the only instigators of evangelistic preaching as if we should just wait for an angel to tell us to go preach or teach, or wait for the Spirit to just catch us up and move us. The vast majority of the examples of evangelistic preaching in the book of Acts do not include supernatural direction or transportation for that matter. Those going out to preach Christ didn't have to wait for an angel to tell them to do so, or to be supernaturally moved from one location to another by the Spirit. But those supernatural motivators in this case strongly impress the great importance of the need for this kind of evangelistic work. On one level, it might be argued that we should be moved by the Spirit to witness to others. And it's certainly true if the Spirit's not present in our preaching, it's going to be unlikely, if not impossible, it's going to be truly effective. The Spirit has to always be present in directing us. But that doesn't mean we have to wait for the Spirit to lift us on our feet and supernaturally move us to the location we're intended to preach 
or for that matter, to supernaturally move people into our church to hear us preach. All those things can happen, but those are exceptions to the rule, not the rule. And we shouldn't have to have the Spirit push us into presenting the gospel to others. We should have an internal spiritual regulator that keeps us stirred up with a desire to see men saved and that causes us to burn within to see them delivered from the darkness they're in and translated into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13 talks about how we've been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And if we have been, we certainly should want to see other people delivered in the same way. In the next chapter of Acts, we see the conversion of Paul on the Damascus Road, and it contains some subtle but significant points on this subject. After Paul's encounter with Christ, before he ever darkened the door of a church, the Lord sent Ananias to him to set him on his path. I'll read Acts 9, 10 through the first half of the 19th verse. I say the first half of the 19th verse because I'm going to start with the second half and read that as well, but I want to address something in this portion first. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been, scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. If God's standard method of adding people to church is to instigate them to come to the church without anyone in the church first going out to them to invite them or share the truth with them or other forms of outreach, then this is yet another example of him doing the exact opposite. If anyone should have been required to come humbly and on their knees, so to speak, to the church after Jesus had opened his eyes, surely someone who had done as much damage as Paul would fit that category. And yet, instead of Jesus giving Paul the address of the church, so to speak, and command him to go there and repent of his deeds and hear the truth first in a church gathering, he gave Ananias Paul's address and sent him to Paul. How merciful and kind is that? And it's exactly the opposite of this mentality that we are not to go out to people with the redemptive message of the gospel. I'm going to read the last half of that 19th verse down to the 22nd, and then I'll add the 29th verse on the end of that. It says, Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And down the 29th verse, it says, He spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. After Ananias had gone to Paul, Paul stayed with the disciples at Damascus. He went to the church, so to speak. It's amazing, considering his lack of experience and knowledge at this point, that he immediately, that's what the word straightway means, 
He immediately started preaching the precious truth of the identity and work of Jesus in the synagogues. The synagogues were not Christian gatherings. They were congregations of those who were still operating under the old covenant and hadn't yet heard or hadn't yet accepted, if they had heard, the message of Jesus. That's not only obvious from the way they're referred to throughout the book of Acts, but just consider the verses that immediately follow this description when it says that he confounded the Jews, obviously in those synagogues, who dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. In other words, that Jesus is the very Messiah. Paul not only began preaching the truth about Jesus almost immediately after his conversion, he did it in a very direct and potentially confrontational way, disputing with and confounding the Jews in one of the most potentially conflict-creating environments he could do it in. But that is not a one-off. This first example of Paul's line of evangelistic attack was the standard approach he took in most of his evangelistic efforts towards the Jews. By the way, there are some who've attempted to demean or deprioritize the necessity of evangelism, outreach, and missions by claiming that we have a higher calling than doing those things, and others in Christendom will take care of those menial labors while we focus on the greater work of the restoration of the church and the production of perfection. There are multiple serious problems with those claims. First, most of those who think our calling is too high to concern ourselves with evangelism and outreach also categorize most of the rest of Christendom as Babylon. Surely we don't believe that it's good for Babylon to be evangelizing people and adding them to their churches, do we? So if you believe that those doing these supposedly lesser works are Babylonish churches, then you'd have to also believe that it's acceptable to put people in Babylon, since we supposedly just don't have the time to put them in the body of Christ, because we have too many other higher priorities. God in heaven forbid. A second problem with the claim that since we're striving to restore the church and produce overcomers, we shouldn't give outreach much of a priority is that that idea is completely oppositional to what we see occurring in the mightiest and the purest church throughout all of history. The church that we are trying to be restored to be like, after all. In trying to transition the Jews from the Old to the New Covenant, the early church had a task just as challenging, granted in different ways, but just as challenging as our seeking to restore the church, and they had a much smaller window to accomplish it in than we've had in our day. Added to that is the fact that not only did the church have to deal with the resistance of the Jews to the transition from the Old to the New Covenant, they were producing overcomers at the same time, and they were doing heavy evangelistic and missions work as well. They did not deprioritize the work of evangelism and outreach because they had a higher purpose of working to transition as much of Israel as possible from the Old and the New Covenant. Nor did they claim that they needed to deprioritize it because they needed to put all their attention on producing overcomers. If Stephen was the first overcomer after Christ, as we generally believe, it's telling that the work of evangelism and outreach ramped up its intensity after he was martyred. The focus of the church didn't suddenly move away from those operations because overcomers are now being produced. That church did all of the work of the church as described in the scripture, from the foundational efforts of evangelism to the highest levels of producing perfection. And if we intend to be like that church, which is what restoration is all about after all, then we likely are going to need to be able to do the same. There's two other verses I want to pull out of Acts 9 before we close this session. Down in Acts 9.35, you notice that Peter healed a palsied man named Aeneas, resulting in a number of people turning to the Lord. It says, all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. These were people who'd likely never visited any of the churches, but who knew Aeneas 
and saw that Aeneas had been healed, and that caused him to want to become a part of the church. That very same type of evangelistic witness occurred after the resurrection of Dorcas as well, as you'll see in the 42nd verse, where it says, It was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. You can see what the methods were of the early church, and I believe were intended to replicate those methods. They were going out to people, and what they did was done publicly and openly, and what they preached and taught was preached and taught publicly and openly as well. 